The world today, in simple terms, is more designable than it has ever been. It is mm -hmm. designable. That is a big deal. Often, the world is just history tumbling forward, like a building was repaired, and then the original occupants left, and it lost its purpose, and then new people moved into it and gave it new purpose, and so it evolved. You could say it was much less designed, aside from its original inception, than it was evolved. There's so much of the world that is more in that state than anything. But when you look at what's happening in modern society, driven by fundamentally computing, you realize it's a designable instance. The good news is it's designable. The bad news is it's designable. And some of those designing it either don't know what they're doing, aren't paying attention to the, the seriousness of the moment, or have ill intentions. And that's, um, that comes, that responsibility, that issue comes along with this, you know, the excitement and the fact that it is uh, a designable time. Uh, it's a big deal. Welcome to Design Drives, your audio experience about what, how, and why design drives things forward. A podcast hosted by Sebastian Gear, together with forward-thinking design practitioners from around the world. In this episode, recorded during Interaction 20 in Milan, I had the honor to chat with Mark Rolson, founder and chief creative officer at Argo, with design studios in Austin, New York, and Amsterdam, which he founded after being chief creative officer at Frog for almost 20 years, founding the Interaction Design capabilities. We dive into how he experienced the transformation of the design industry from designing physical products to designing digital ecosystems and experiences across physical and digital domains. We also talk about the balance between thinking and doing, which is actually something he's focusing on, the connection between the strategic and facilitation side of design, as well as the craft and material side of design when it comes to execution. We also talk about the future of technology and user interaction, designing the invisible, system level design and the relevance of reality as the next big platform and also how games and game design principles already start to create a foundation for these interaction principles and way of computing it was an absolute inspiring conversation so i hope you enjoyed the episode hi mark thanks for making time we hit an um, interaction design conference yeah. in milan and you're founder of argo design but we're going to talk a little bit about argo design and um, some of the things you're driving there but maybe for the people who don't know you it would be great if you can tell a little bit about your background some of the things you did in the past right. so people get yeah, who the to hell know a little bit yeah right right so yeah mark ralston i've been doing this for about 30 years i've been mm -hmm. a professional designer for a while now. I originally had my own small little design firm that um, way back in 94, Frog Design bought, mm -hmm. adopted me a long time ago. Yeah. And I became essentially their first software designer. And mm -hmm. uh, we grew a little team. That was the first time Frog, you know, sort of expanded its platform from its traditional space in industrial design into software UX. The mindset was that me and my team would be a nice addendum to the industrial design. In other words, we'd help on anything in any project that needed on-screen support, right? So we were, we were doing, and the first project we did was a stereo system that had a screen and it, so it had software. So you need, you need designers for that, right? So that's what we did. But really within a year, the market exploded in terms of um, dot-com and all of the PC-related opportunities, the web and even just enterprise software started to transform pretty radically. And it very quickly changed Frog as a whole. So we weren't just doing these you know, support programs for industrial design, but we ended up doing more business than Frog had ever done historically on software work, on PC work. So we, we did a lot of work with Microsoft on what was called Windows 2000 at the time, became Windows XP. We worked with SAP. We did Dell.com, which was at the time the world's largest, most profitable mm -hmm. website until later. <laughs> Some five years later, Amazon way outran it. Uh, you know, nowadays it's not even, it's not even funny. But at the time, it was, it was, you know, it was a, a nice badge of honor to have. So 
that became, I think at the end of the day, I was there for 20 years and we, you know, it was 90% of the business we did. And when Hartmut Esslinger, the founder of Frog retired, um, I took over as the head of design, the global design officer and chief creative officer, I guess the title uh, there, and ran that for a while, ran that for, it was about 10 years. And then I left in th at the end of 2013 and started my own design firm. You know, Frog is a wonderful place, continues to be a wonderful firm. I enjoyed my time there, but it was really time for me to create my own thing. Mm -hmm. And that's what Argo is, was is a beautiful opportunity to just create my own design firm, mm -hmm. to take all that I had learned and be able to start fresh with those ideas and do some things differently. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's you started it. You started it together with another colleague from Frog, right? Uh, yeah. Actually, a handful of folks. Um, Jared Ficklin, I've worked very closely with. He's a what we call a creative technologist. So mm -hmm. he's he's kind of a software engineer with a very much a designer's head. And he and I really are close in the theory of why and what is happening in the mm -hmm. world. And then Mark Gogger, I've worked with for many many years as well. So all these folks, we go back. It's it's kind of cool. We go back like 10, 15 years each and in, in, in the amount of time we've worked together. Uh, so Mark Hogger was the business development lead at Frog. And I'll tell you what's important about that because, you know, as designers, sometimes we sort of poo-poo the BD folks. Um, sometimes they are assholes or just shills. But Mark, uh, when he came in, I was super skeptical uh, about him when he came, came to Frog way back. It was 2002. But he right away threw down how clearly he cared about the work and, and about what we were doing and was a fantastic partner. Um, we went out together and, and sold a lot of work, you know, Mark and Mark, and it was, um, it, it was a great relationship. So, uh, when I, when it was time for me to start a firm, I called him up and said, what are you doing? And he was at, he had left frog a couple of years before and was doing something else. And he, he quit his job and, We started Argo. That's awesome. So, great relationship. Um, it was interesting what you were mentioning about uh, when you were starting at Frog, it was mostly industry design driven, right? With, it was. You know, Esslinger back in the days and, um, you know, all the the, the projects uh, you guys did for, for Apple and so on, Sony. So can you tell a little bit about that, you know, transition phase a little bit? I think it was nice what you mentioned there that, you know, in the beginning it was just, you know, sometimes there was a display you guys did something about it and you know later on i guess the projects uh, scopes were completely it's different. hard to it's hard to put our heads back into that time yeah yeah but if you were working back then you you'd remember there wasn't a lot of design going on in software it was still very basic yeah still very very nascent so frog was a company that it started in 1969 And by 94, it was almost entirely a classical industrial design firm and had some branding services. A really amazing uh, designer named Gregory Hom was driving that. And, and Frog, funny enough, is, is responsible for so many really famous logos like Oracle and Acura. So anyway, aside from that, it was really recognized for this couple of famous things like the Apple Macintosh the original Apple Mac. And so when we came along, the obvious, you know, everyone thought the obvious answer was you're going to help what the industrial designers do. Because there were this emerging class of problems where there was software involved. And you almost have to think of it almost more superficially. It was, there's a screen on that thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, any number of the things that were getting made, there was a screen on it. And so the superficial ask was, can you do the user interface for that? But I grew up with a more classical um, line of thinking around software. Um, I was a programmer as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so I like to think I had a deeper mindset about software than just the UI. So we started taking on other problems um, up to the point where we got introduced to SAP, mm -hmm. you know, famous German company at the time, I think the largest software company in the world, bigger than Microsoft, um, or at least head to head with it. And we got to redesign that 
interface, the, the interface that made that multi-billion dollar company run. Mm-hmm. It was a huge accomplishment and really just sort of reframed overnight what we were. And uh, the whole company saw that. You might say this sort of old, big industrial design firm uh, saw that and things went on from there. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a big deal. But the dot-com boom was happening <coughs> right about that time. And so there were so many new clients coming, asking for that kind of work as opposed to more traditional industrial design. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a lot of ways, After it, project, right? yeah. it reframed um, what Frog was. And today, Frog's moved past that simple dichotomy yeah. of hardware-software to a much richer yeah. sense of oh, the whole industry has. I mean, not, this is not just about them, but um, us, Argo Design, all of the, the sort of the key design firms out there now really think of it as a design strategy with a multidisciplinary approach to what what delivery might be yeah yeah that leads us to today yeah absolutely did you work from austin austin or yeah it's kind of a funny secret about um those times uh you know Frog is known as a san francisco based company with german heritage yeah started right so everyone says Anytime the press mentions them, they say San Francisco. But the largest studio, mm-hmm. the most profitable studio, um, and the center of sort of software delivery for so many years was in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, no one wanted to rename or reframe it as a Austin-based company. It, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have made any sense. But a lot of the leadership was in Austin. And by then, really, the practically the leadership of frog was kind of diffuse all around the world yeah. there were there was the op- head of operations in new york the president myself the head of creative the head of technology for many years the cto and for a few years the head of strategy were all in austin um and mm-hmm. like i said the largest um uh, count of designers yeah. was was in austin so i lived in austin yeah to answer your question i've always lived in austin texas yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, ran it out of there mm-hmm what were some of your your projects uh, in the past? You um, uh, really had the feeling you could drive impact through design, or maybe some of your f- first project where it really clicked for you, or some of the projects that really stood out for you. So when I think back through the years for design, especially this you know the current sort of hot aspects of design like software user interface, software experience design. The major break for the industry for myself at the same time was moving from these sort of individual executions. When you look at teams that were building websites in the mid-90s, they were still struggling to do sort of single pages at a time and dealing with it on a template basis. But by the late 90s, a a systems approach had really broken through. And it was borrowed from platform-level software creation, creating control libraries with standard elements that could be repurposed. And... Yeah, that took off. Dell.com, SAP, GE, Sun Microsystems, all of those were major projects that were sort of breakthroughs in applying a systems level of thinking to it, not just in the way that you solve the interaction problems, but in the way that you built the site itself. That was a major change to how people started looking at software, that they could be very thoughtful and strategic and through that, build something bigger than you might say what their hands could touch, right? When you're talking about a site with thousands of pages or in the case of SAP, it, it has tens of thousands of individual tasks that it can execute. Yep. So tens of thousands of screens. It's not something you can do manually. You have to do it with a really robust systems mm-hmm. mindset. Uh, and so that was a major breakthrough. Beyond that, we had some really beautiful projects. I'd say the, the most interesting is Disney Magic Band, mm-hmm. where the, the kind of thinking that, that sort of systems level thinking that went into one medium started to become really useful across a whole range of media at the same time, right? How people experienced a physical space, what kind of software they were using throughout that process, what they used to sign up to get in, to pay for things and the kind of physical touch points that they encountered through all of that process, all of that was designed together in one cohesive story, one experience that felt meaningfully whole 
and um, singularly considered. And that was, uh, yeah, that was a massive breakthrough project and one of the last major things mm -hmm. that we did at Frog when I was there. There were a lot of projects like that, but that one was heads and shoulders above in both scale and impact and um, just memorability. Yeah. It's beautiful. I yeah, I think what's interesting also about the um, the Disney project was that it, I think, uh, aspect that was sometimes of look how you can take, uh, you know, also looking at services and how you can take a, a moment where somebody is in your space and turn this into a relationship. Yeah. Um, and I think some of the thinking that was uh, there, which was not just about the band, but, you know, what it enables in terms of for a relationship. Yeah, the band, um, funny, the band gets some attention. It's a beautiful piece of industrial design, but the band is really just a simple affordance to turn everyone in that park into a node in the network. Mm -hmm. You think of it that way. You think yeah. we just made everyone a recognizable piece of hardware. We know that that wristband equals that name, and it's at this place in the overall park. And if you can have that information then you can do so many really interesting things to make that person wearing that band feel like they're being taken care of, like they're known, and it can reduce all kinds of frictions that are normally there when you're trying to move about the park, like get indoors, get in gates, get in yeah. lines, pay for things, so forth. It starts with that wristband, but it's really, like you said, it's, it's all of the services that are enabled past that. And we really, it's funny, we don't really talk about, I still don't really talk about service design that much. It's not that we don't talk about the idea. We just don't use that term. We tend to think of it as an overall experience. We just experience design. Yeah. And I know there's a lot of potential debate about what term is most appropriate. But yeah. while, yes, that project was an extremely robust set of service designs, we were really talking about it. It's this overall Disney magic band experience, something that you could create because you had these affordances in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super interesting. Maybe going back to your funding of uh, or that you co-founded Argo Design. Yeah. Uh, what was um, some of the thinking and some of the 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 drive behind that? Why you wanted that and uh, some of the the impact you want maybe want to have. With. Yeah. So anytime you're starting a new design firm, people are going to ask why. You know, you can you can start with sort of selfish reasoning. It's like I'd like to do my own thing. Uh, so there's some of that, right? And I, I've enjoyed the autonomy that comes from creating your own gig. But since then, we've built up a you know, fairly large group. We're almost 100 people. So Argo Design is no longer just my thing. It's yeah. a bigger thing than that now. And so it, get, it comes back to what are the original, what are the other reasonings that, that has to transcend anything I wanted to do. And that comes down to, I think, a couple of really key ideas. One is we wanted to, re, you might say, reduce some of the key frictions in working with our clients. I think one of the things we experienced at Frog was it had become, by, by becoming a very large, successful firm, there were a lot of frictions uh, involved in finding and um, wrapping your head around what a client needed from you and a lot of frictions even internally in finding the right team and putting a team to work on those problems. Sometimes we just couldn't do it because every time a problem came to us, we brought back a battleship. And sometimes you just need a little tiny boat to solve the problem. Yep. And starting Argo, we wanted and did lighten the load, you might say, and what it took to find and sign up clients and engage them And we allowed ourselves that nimbleness. And some of that's just the freedom of being small. But even today, I, I still think we managed to do a lot of work with very little overhead. And mm -hmm. So that, that was one, I think, really nice outcome. Most importantly, though, is we have a key philosophy that we brought to the table that we really wanted to play out. Design thinking had, for years, been playing itself out in the field. And the market had come to expect a certain class of agency. You could call IDEO, you could call Frog, you could call a few others, and get a very thoughtful, strategic approach to your problem. An analysis and a breakdown of what was observable um, and a set of concepts that would sort of describe a potential strategy. Mm -hmm. There's, at the same time, a whole nother set of firms 
that are really good at just getting it done. Production-minded, clever, in touch with the materials involved in problems, you know, whether it be a technology or an, an industrial design, literally materials. And they were favored for their, you might say, their high touch in design work. Production, right? Yeah, yeah but they couldn't necessarily bring a strategic game to the table. And we found there's a sweet spot right in the middle there where people were frustrated with, well, I, I can't just go to that production firm because I need problems to be thought through more robustly. And every time I hire these higher-end firms, I get a PowerPoint deck back, but I need them to go to work with it. I need to finish the yeah. job. <laughs> and we found an incredible appeal in that simple, if you can bring that strategic approach, that thoughtfulness to solving problems through research, through analysis, through building strategies alongside your client, yet also have a really sensitive mind towards what the materiality of what you're solving is. In other words, to actually know something about software, to think about how it's going to be developed, um, what kind of delivery they're expecting is a massive advantage to take those two and bring those two things together and just be thoughtful about it is first of all it's not magic it's just to put your mind to that and bring the right people to the table and i think it's been fantastic so yeah. that we call that idea think by making mm -hmm. right so it's it's kind of an ode to the lost craft of solving problems it comes down to the simple idea that a lot of technology doesn't um that we you might say as designers we're trying to will a solution onto it Think about like clay. Clay is raw technology for form giving. A great sculptor can't just will that clay into the form that they want. They have to have a conversation with that clay, you might say. It's almost, they have to understand what the clay is willing to do, what it's able to do as a, as a material. And between what the clay is able to do and willing to do and what they want it to do, they find an answer. It's back and forth. So we consider the work we, we're often doing a conversation with the technology. The technology will actually tell you some of the better ways it can solve the problem you're seeking to solve rather than you just ordaining an answer and, and trying to make it happen. Yeah, rather than work in, a, in, a, in yeah. an abstract. Yeah, I mean, anybody who makes cars knows this, that cars are incredibly bound by physics. And so it's truly a conversation with the materiality of a car, things like the rubber, um, the stress limits of metal and making an engine, all of that is this two-way street between what you'd like to do and the reality of it. But I think in software, in the design world, we haven't really come to the same terms that some of the more classical disciplines have, mm -hmm. like industrial design. I think it was very interesting what you pointed out there between you know, strategic thinking, Uh, the reasoning, the analytics, um, you know, aspects of design or design thinking, and the craft, mm -hmm. and I feel like also, f I mean, I, I really can see it from a client side that kind of need to, you know, capture both. But also, if I mean that opinion might be very personal, but I feel it also gets from I heard it from other designers. This also from a creative perspective, something that's like if that's something that is enabled that you could, you know, go. You know, that you have a bit more reason, a bit more of strategic thinking mm -hmm. uh, behind your projects. You can be part of this. Uh, maybe not, you know, all the way, but, you know, um, you're at least part of this process. And then you can also uh, work on the, the final results. Uh, and then, you know, even people that are more design strategists, uh, you know, they also like that things you know, go further and don't like to, you know, finish with the power. Yeah, I think it's a good right? trend. Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah, we're not alone in this. Um You know, we're happy we're particularly good at it, but um, no, I don't think it's, an, we don't have an exclusive yeah, hold on that. But idea. I can imagine it, it helps also from a creative side to enable these, these oh, both yeah. sides. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, it, design, for the it, design team, right? The whole industry is starting to grow up and I think realize the balance between a strategic mind and a craft, crafting mind. And there were often too many ridiculous debates over the last 20 years as the design industry first awoke to this sort of possibilities of being strategic in the first place and not simply being um, craftsmen for hire, which I think a lot of the industry was up until the mid-90s. 
And so you might say the pendulum swung pretty hard where we had to sort of over-acknowledge strategy, right? We over-acknowledged the, the opportunity to develop a mindset. But there was a lot still left on the table with craft. And mm-hmm. it turns out the two have quite a healthy conversation when you do it right. And uh, it's nice to see the industry sort of embracing that. Absolutely. Design by doing, you know, or yeah. you know, instead of design thinking, it is a, sort of a mix of design thinking plus design doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or maybe, you know, talking a little bit about the intersection of, you know, design and technology also looking forward, what, what excites you, you know, being in that space? Yeah. Um, being a creative in that space. As a firm, um, so for me and really we sort of, Jared and I crafted Argo around these these ideas, the work we've taken on has almost exclusively been, been focused on platform-centric opportunities. There are still today, if you think about it just as a contrast, there's a lot of industries you could work in where you're working on the same thing over and over. If you work on a company that makes appliances, you may largely just be carefully innovating that same appliance for, for, the, for the like of your career. But in our industry and in design, it's such a special time where every day there's potentially an entirely new platform from which people will learn to live their lives either slightly differently and maybe even radically differently based on that platform. You know, the iPhone, the mobile phone introduced radical new propositions about how people could live day to day. And we're seeing some of the side effects of that, both negative and positive, every day. There are other platforms that are hoping to be the next iPhone. For example, um, one of our biggest customers today is Magic Leap. Mm-hmm. And you saw them talk yeah. uh, today, this morning. They built a computer, right? Another kind of computer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the iPhone, it's another platform, a new platform with a new mindset about how you use it and what you do. But of course, this in this case... Um, it's potentially even more interesting in that it it sits in your perceptual sense of the world. It projects through the way that you see, right? And it plays audio right there in the way that you're perceiving audio in the room. It doesn't feel like a separate device, I guess. I'm trying to find a way to explain this. We pull our phones out of our pocket, right? And we engage them. And while we get immersed in them, while we're staring down at that little black box, we still can put it away and pop right back into the real world. So we're sort of engaging these things like our laptops and Mm -hmm. our phones modally in and out, in and out all day long, in and out of them, using them, putting them away, using them, putting them away. One of the radical propositions with a device like the Magic Leap and it won't happen with the current iteration of it because it's too big, but it's headed towards a future yeah. where it's just with you and it's part of your perceptual sense of the world around you. And there will be things that it renders constantly in your visual plane. So it's it's able to communicate with you in your space as, as opposed to you leaving your space and going to another space to compute, right? When you do, When you grab your phone and you look down at it, you're kind of leaving the world around you, which is why we bump into poles, why people <laughs> crash their cars when they pull that up, because they're having to leave the real world to use this little device and then go back. But imagine a computer that's actually part of your conversation. It runs in parallel, right? Yes. Yeah. It's not just parallel. It runs with and in. Yeah. You know, there's these fantastic experiences, these these games um, right now, because a lot of it is still just games, where the dinosaur for example, is running around on the floor and it runs under a table, right? That's, it's still, you know, once you kind of absorb how meaningful that is, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm still excited by just the proposition because it's part of the room. It's under the table. It's a real table, an artificial dinosaur, (laughs) and it's disappeared. It's it's a different level than looking at a 3D object in the space. Yes, it's not just Uh, like holding... 3D is engaging with the complexity of the environment. Yes, and so when you get past the sort of cuteness of that dinosaur example, you start to realize like, oh, okay, I can leave things virtually in this room, leave the room, go away, you know, maybe go, go to sleep, 
uh, come back, and there it is again. Computing starts to take on qualities that real things have, like being able to leave them in places, um, to have their permission, to have their accessibility be spatially uh, uh, contextual, right? We don't think of like sharing a file with someone uh, as something that we could do in the same way we might share things in the real world, right? I can, I could leave something freely here on this table in the real world and expect because it's there, others have permission implicitly because it's sitting on the table and not sitting with on me that they can take it. Now we can do the same thing with files. I can do the same thing with presentations. Mm -hmm. I can also decorate the world around me. I can start to take and, and curate what I see. I can, and more importantly, I can start to leave evidence of my presence in the world. I could, for example, explain something and leave that in a space and someone could come along and get that explanation. So let's say I'm trying to teach someone how to repair a car engine. Yeah, yeah. I could make that explanation, leave my ghost there for anyone else to come up to that engine and get an explanation about how to repair it. Mm -hmm. Super simple example, but yeah. it's just super exciting because it's a whole nother way of thinking about computing um, related to human beings. Absolutely. And I think it's also, it also connects to, you know, game design in a way, because, you know, if you think about, you know, a lot of games that deal with 3D and like spaces quite, quite a bit for already uh, quite a while. Uh, and the whole idea, you have to go there to pick up certain things or like, the, like shape the world around you. Um, so I think this comes into play more and more. I think when we start to design, you know, our own uh, experiences as humans. So I guess there's something to learn also, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of vocabulary in game design that um, we can draw upon. It's interesting, you know, the key challenge of this device is not is to not simply be slavish to the physicality of it, not to send the pendulum too far the other way. Yeah. But to recognize this computer, this new kind of computer exists in this duality between the immediacy of an interface in front of you that in a lot of ways follows traditional models of computing where I might have a container like a folder and I want to put some things in that. And they're not physical. They're, they're, no, they're notional. They're, they're like a bunch of pictures. I don't need to represent them as Polaroids or anything like that. I know they're files. I'm okay with that. Um, or they're abstractions, like they're files for music, right? Not, I'll have to listen to those um, to, to actually digest them. So the representation, again, is, is just a computer-based um, concept. So I want to contain those in a folder. And the, the navigation of that is just like I would want to navigate on a PC or a an iPhone or anything like that. Conversely, at the same time, that space has to coexist with the fact that I do want to place things in context to the real world. I'm seeing these things in the same way I see the cup in front of me or the floor in front of me or the tables and chairs. I can place things that respect that room and the space around me um, as if they actually were there in the room. So we're having in the invention of this to, to sort of balance those two factors. What, what belongs as, a, as just a computing level interaction and what belongs as a physical level interaction? And uh, it's a whole new space to solve for. So, you know, back to your original question, we dig, we really dig problems like that and we, we spend a lot of time exploring the possibilities in that because I think the net-net opportunity is to help people engage the power of computing but in more natural ways. Because right now, society is really being pressed to take advantage of what computing can do, connect with each other, get information. Everyone's jobs typically interfaces with one, one way or another. Yet the way in which we're asked to do that is by interfacing with these little boxes that we've got to babysit. And it's not a real survivable system. I know we're all kind of immersed in it right now, but when you really think, I think long-term, you realize the future has to entail a style of interaction that's much more sort of naturally cooperative with the real world. Mm -hmm. 
And so anything that sort of hints towards that, I'm just crazy excited about. One uh, aspect I picked up from you, uh, Priya, was the topic of ramification of everywhere. Uh, is that this what, uh, when, you, when you talk about the, the 3D space and the opportunities there, is this what you are referencing? Or? So there's, um, there's several concepts around that. One is the basic realization that everything, everywhere, and everyone will become part of the computing landscape. And when you think about that, you start to realize like, well, every object um, today that you can address physically yourself, and you can see, let's say you see a mountain, you can see a river, you can touch a car, you can grab a, a cup in front of you. All of those things will also exist as a described object in virtual space, not visually represented, but the metadata about them, this, the descriptions about them and what can be known or done with them will be available to you. And it is largely starting to happen, right? You can, you can see Mount McKinley in front of you, but you can look it up as well. And there's a you know, ton of information about it. The key is those are right now very separate realities, what you see in front of you or climb up and what you can look up on a computer. Yeah. But it, you have to imagine the future is smashing those together yeah, yeah. to where they're inseparable, where they, the way they are known is inseparably the same thing. To the future person, those are one thing, especially when we're talking about people. It's not me and all that is about me online. It is the same, especially when you think about how the government thinks about you You are your record, how the law, how others financially or personally think about you. You are not only you in the flesh, but your digital version of yourself and all of that record. And so those things, because the interface is getting better, are smashing together, which means everywhere, to your question, everywhere is one of the actors in that, that, that triptych there. Um, everywhere becomes part of the computing sphere in the way that you can describe computing opportunities. Right now, this computer in front of you, uh, what we're using to record, it doesn't know where it is, right? It doesn't know I'm here. It doesn't know you're here. It just knows it's on and it has permission because uh, you logged in. But you can imagine future states of these things is it knows it, it's me and it knows it's you. And knowing it's you, it, it automatically gave you permission Knowing it's me, it might add another mode that mm -hmm. from the cloud recognized and annotated mm -hmm. the fact that you're recording me. So it, it brought all of that metadata and all of that record into the moment. Um, we don't do that right now, uh, but that's all quickly becoming possible. Mm -hmm. Looking at that, it's very exciting to you know, see all these opportunities. How do you see the role of designers when it comes to, comes to that future? Well, um, For most of history, uh, things just happened, right? Political forces. You, you, know, you could say history belonged to politicians at different times. History belonged to the warriors or fighters at times, to inventors. Today is a very designable time. There are so many fundamental technologies coming on board that are becoming ubiquitous enough, cheap enough, simple enough that They can be introduced in any myriad of ways. And the only answer to driving that is design. The world today, in simple terms, is more designable than it has ever been. It is mm -hmm. designable. That is a big deal. Often, the world is just history tumbling forward, like a building was repaired, and then the original occupants left, and it lost its purpose, and then new people moved into it, and gave it new purpose. And so it evolved. You could say it was much less designed aside from its original inception than it was evolved. There's so much of the world that is more in that state than anything. But when you look at what's happening in modern society, driven by fundamentally computing, you realize it's a designable instance. The good news is it's designable. The bad news is it's designable. And Some of those designing it either don't know what they're doing, aren't paying attention to the, the seriousness of the moment, 
or have ill intentions. And that's, um, that comes, that responsibility, that issue comes along with this, you know, the excitement and the fact that it is a a designable time. Uh, It's a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. Social networks today are, uh, I'd say, an example of a poorly designed answer to a, a technical opportunity. You can connect the world, great. Now we've allowed the world to shout at itself and taken every crazy person who used to just shout in their basement and given them a stage without any kind of social control, any sort of standards or ideas about, and it's not that you need the government or somebody to sort of filter them. What you, what we need is a society that even understands how to measure that. And that, you know, that had already evolved over hundreds of years, thousands of years, even in how to choose between the crazy people in their basements and the, the people that we want to listen to. And, you know, occasionally we made big mistakes about who to, who to listen to, but you'd say less often than not. But today there's just, there's no filter system. There's no even understanding among any one of us about when and where um, uh, voices are to be heard. And that's, that's uh, out of control, you might say. It's a poorly designed uh, yeah. solution. Yeah, very often things are poorly designed or you know just randomly the way they they are, right? And uh, the question is like, how much consciousness do we bring in into um, the, the conversation? Some of these things just take time. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not. Sh- I, I don't offer a better answer either. I can just observe how. Yeah. How shitty the situation is. Yeah, I think it was very interesting what you said about it's a very designable future. And then looking at you know design, how has the community to evolve, you know, to be part of that conversation or a drive impact, you know, considering the, the future scenarios you were drawing. We yeah, it's I think it's exciting that the industry is talking about um, social issues, impact. I think right now it's a little bit facile. There's the sort of the go-to list of of things that we we're talking about, um, ecology, social responsibility. Those are great. I don't mean to diminish them. They're just very topical issues. And yet when you really look at design's opportunity, there are so many things that are much more nuanced that can be tackled. And we do have immediate um, opportunities with things like structuring communications between people. Um, And to solve that, could have positive ramifications across so many topics. I'd like to see more conversation around that. Mm -hmm. I think it was very interesting what you were telling about, you know, great, now we made it connected to the internet, right? Uh, Everything will end up, it doesn't, it's not that it has to be, it just will happen that way. Everything in the world is, will be essentially encoded in one way or another and addressable. And, at the, so there's like two vectors happening is that that vector right and the other one is computer interfaces getting better and most importantly within that idea is they're disappearing mm-hmm. the computer interfaces are no longer this machine that you go into a room and turn on they're in our pockets but they're evolving towards where you know what i was describing earlier with the magic leap device and other similar devices where they're evolving to just be part of our perceptual space, our sight line. And when you take those two ideas and connect them, you realize you give a human being the ability to address the world, not just on its surface level, but in all that was known and is known about it. To, and you get crazy conceptual ideas become very real, like you can talk to things. You can talk to people across time and space. You can leave virtual things in real places. You can build real, you can build virtual places in real places so that people can enjoy spaces that otherwise don't really exist. You get all kinds of these new ideas that reframe what it is to be. And that I think is, yeah, super exciting. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, if you connect that, you know, everything is connected and then also interfaces disappear. I think then we are more and more designing also the untangible, right? We're designing what it means to live. Yeah. Yes, that's, it's a scary proposition. And that's, 
you know, the responsibility of that can't just be talking about those facile subjects. We have to get much more conversant in the sort of more intimate aspects of what, how a person identifies with themselves. How do they think of themselves? Identity itself, when you start to realize that so much of your identity is contained in the digital sphere and expressible in the digital sphere, and so much of how you think is not just in your head. Think about like the fact that LinkedIn advice, or Facebook or any of the uh, social networks are helping you say happy birthday to somebody. It's telling you to say happy birthday. Now, you said happy birthday to them. Is that you or is that the machine, right? And who's responsible for that? Part of your brain is externalized in that tiny little moment. But imagine more of that power and imagine a truly capable AI which is driving more of your conversation, more of your ideas. And it may be compiling them from your head, having listened to you for years. It now knows what you should say, and it's you. But maybe it's also getting some ideas from outside, you know, some clever jokes that you ought to tell uh, in the middle of a conversation. Is that you? Mm -hmm. I think it arguably is. Just like when you use a calculator, it's still your answer, but you used a calculator. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this relationship with technology has never been tested at that level. I think we, we came to terms with things like calculators, right? Like we didn't give up math because we had a calculator. So we have to think of the same kind of conflation of capability when we realize how much of that might be assignable or you know, lo loaned out to a, an external machine. Mm -hmm. That design needs to become very conversant in what that does to people and what it means to be an individual in that kind of world. Yeah. It's tricky. I think sometimes we as designers are not aware of the outcome we're actually um, driving, right? <laughs> no, we are blind. We're absolutely blindly. The consequences, yeah. Right and I think it's so easy. I think the example you brought about the Facebook and, and LinkedIn, how easy and soft the transition goes for people mm -hmm. to outsource their knowledge yes. and literally put their knowledge into the cloud. You know, so I, I don't need to know when your birth, like I don't need to remember it because, you know, know, systems number, systems going to remind yeah. me. Yes. So it's, it's, you know, it automatically pops into my you know, calendar. I've got to know, right, that day. Or it can look it up prior. So that's so. all flat data. So think about how, how impactful what you're describing is. It's, you, you've got a great point there. It, but what's so profound to me is that's flat data. In other words, that calendar appointment, the computer didn't invent it. It's yeah, just yeah. reflecting it back for you. And it, it, so it's relieving a bit of cognitive load for you. But now imagine more data than that, more of your life than that was served up to you, was computed It was originally incepted by the machine and delivered to you. So yes, on somebody's birthday, uh, it reminded you, but you had to tell it. But what if you didn't tell it that it was a birthday and it figured it out? It figured out that you had a relationship with that person. Mm -hmm. It figured out that that relationship merited a happy birthday. And now it figured out something you ought to say to them and what you might buy for them if they ranked high enough to receive a gift from you. Mm -hmm. And you're in charge of all the knobs and you can refuse to go along maybe, but all of that's being delivered up to you. And it's so good. It's so you it's that's the, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's when it transcends just great reminder systems. Yeah, and absolutely. And something I, wholly else. And I think sometimes when these futures are drawn out, I think sometimes they feel like, they, you know, they might be far away or something, but there is a, oh, it's no. an iterative process. And like, I think, it's I mean, boiling the, the, a lobster the, the, right yeah, now. The, we get the, the happy birthdays today. Yeah, 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 exactly. The calendar example is one, you know, example, yeah. and it's going to transition, right? So you, yeah. you see now in chats, they tell you, you know, examples of how you could reply to a message. So it's even quicker for you and easier. So, I mean, these are just little hints of, you know, in iteration that is, you know, coming and, you know, moving forward. Yeah, I think super interesting. Maybe to, to wrap it up as a last question, there's a lot of talk in the past and, you know, still ongoing about the, the role and uh, the value of design. There has been studies from McKinsey and John Maeda, uh, Design and Tech Report, and uh, a lot of other research uh, about that. Um, how do you see, you know, and a lot of, you know, discussion about the design being part of, of the table? 
Um, how do you see uh, that whole topic evolving and uh, moving forward? So I think we passed the question of design having value in the boardroom. I think okay. most boardrooms that have, you know, woken up to that idea and are just figuring, trying to figure out how to tap into it. They, so they hear, hey, I, I hear this is really useful. And who do I call? So they're trying to figure out how to have conversations with that. I think the other thing is designers deal with a lot of inference and emotional bias and probabilities, things that aren't yet to be. They're not measurable things. They're things we have to infer. Like if you design it this way, more customers will like it. You know, we're, we're inferring that possibility. And, and a lot of it we're injecting our own bias into mm -hmm. because to, to a degree design is, has an art to it. And that's still very uncomfortable for a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives who need to hire design. Now I see some of them, I see some of my customers getting more and more conversant in that side of it. And that's, that's a beautiful thing because then they start to understand the value of our decisions. The, the fact that they're paying someone who is emotionally in tune with their customer, not just, you know, factually in tune with them. That's a big deal. And be, if they understand that value and they see that in us, then they'll apply value more value to us. Uh, so on top of that, the basic idea that more of the world can and needs to be designed and that those are commercial opportunities is driving the value of what we do. That's, mm -hmm. and that's not likely to change. In fact, you could take the, you know, the ultimate formula is that if more of the world becomes virtualized, in other words, we can exist more through software constructs. And it sounds a little scary, like we're laying dormant in a bed with our heads plugged into something. But you have to think of, you know, the moment you have yeah. every day with your phone, you're partially existing in a virtual sphere in that manner. Imagine more of that, and it's more robust. It's not such an escape from normality, real life. It's more threaded with real life. Now, when that happens, you'll spend more time there. Because of that, more of that can be and will need to be designed. Mm -hmm. And those designs can be more fanciful because they're not as bound by the physicality and the costs and the materiality. You know, the, the waste it takes to redo a room means you have to destroy a real room, cut down some more trees to get the wood to build the new room. When you want, you fancy a new room, mm -hmm. you know, or there's a new purpose for that room. And you take that idea of scale and you can imagine if we can virtually do a lot of those things, it's more work for us to do. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah, I think um, exciting future, I think, for design and you know, in general, I think. I think we need to wrap, wrap it up uh, because of time. But, um, you know, thank you so much for, for sharing all this and bringing the insights here. Cool. Thanks for the chance to talk to you. That was the episode. If you want to give us feedback on the podcast, have something to contribute to the next episode, or just want to get in touch, feel free to connect with us either on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram messages, or simply via the designdrives.org website. We love to hear from you.